0: All right, we don't normally do this, but I'm going to give you one more opportunity to stand as I read God's Word. So you stand with me, I'm going to read Philippians 1. Like I said, we don't do this every week, but it is a way that we can honor the Word of God. Standing as it's read. So, So listen as I read, starting in verse 18, Philippians chapter 1. Yes! you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let me pray for us one more time and then we'll dive in. Lord, I, I pray this morning that you would fill our hearts up with the joy of knowing you, that all the the fleeting pleasures of this world would fade into the background and our hearts would be captivated by the joy of seeing and knowing you in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing, acceptable in your sight. Would you show us wonderful things from your law? And above all, would you glorify your son for his namesake and for our joy in him? Amen. 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 There we go. Okay, we're good. You guys good? Are you awake? You with me? All right, maybe. Um, Let me ask you a question. What has the experience of suffering produced in your soul? What has the experience of suffering produced in your soul? As you have faced trial, temptation, sickness, unmet expectations, tragedy, loss, conflict, spiritual, emotional, mental, physical, pain, what has been the effect of that experience on your soul? You see, for many, suffering does one of two things. It does one of two things. It either hardens you and makes you bitter and angry and cold, where it overwhelms you and makes you anxious and frantic and fearful. You either fold your arms and scowl and wall up as a way to protect yourself, or you live in constant fear, looking over your shoulder, running and hiding from whatever the next hurt may be. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can anyone relate, relate to that? That experience of suffering? turning you cold, turning you bitter, or that experience of suffering turning you fearful and frantic? Well, in our passage this morning, Paul is suffering. He's been unjustly arrested and in prison, and he is awaiting a trial uh, that may end in his execution. And yet, his experience of suffering has not produced bitterness and it's not produced fear, it's produced joy. His experience of suffering has produced joy. You, you see, the banner that hangs over the, this entire passage, you have it open there in front of you, the banner that hangs over this entire passage is those first five words. Yes, and I will rejoice. In fact, that this whole unit of thought from verses 12-12, through 26 actually hinges and turns on verse 18 where Paul exuberantly declares his joy. Prior to 18, Paul is describing the joy he has because of what God has done, that that he has used his imprisonment to advance the gospel. And what follows in verse 18 in our passage this morning Paul is describing the joy he has because of what God will do. So it's this hinge that that, that this entire passage turns on. Paul's joy amidst suffering. And and here's the question Paul's life begs us to ask. is The question I want to ask you. What if there was a way to live your life so that even the worst sufferings that you encounter were reasonable? for profound rejoicing in the Lord. What if there was a way? Wouldn't that be a wonderful way to live? Wouldn't that be wonderful if there was a way that you could live so that even your worst sufferings were reason pro- for profound rejoicing in the Lord? Brothers and sisters, I know that many of you have suffered profoundly. But if you're here and, and, and maybe it's been a while and, and things are going well, know that you will suffer. Right? The, if we, we, we Just read the first section of Psalm 34, but if you keep reading in that, that psalm, the psalmist goes on to say, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And Jesus said, of course, In the world you will have trouble. Peter, of course, says, don't be surprised at the, fiery chi- at the fiery trial, but do what? Rejoice. What if there was a way to live so that even your worst sufferings were a reason for profound rejoicing in the Lord? And, and I'm not talking about some kind of like religious masochism here. I, I'm talking about what James says when he writes Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience joy. Trials of various kinds. So, so what's the what's the secret? What's Paul's secret? Here he is. He's sitting in prison, suffering, and yet profoundly rejoicing. What's the secret? The good news is it's not a secret. The good news is uh, God wants you to know how to live a life. Of joy. God's spirit, who inspired this passage, wants you to know. Paul, the author of this passage, wants you to know. And remember, of course, that Paul is writing to encourage the Philippians. If you've been here, we're, we're, we're continuing on through this book in Philippians. And I've told you, well, actually, let me give you a little quiz. What's Paul's main reason for writing? He's writing for a couple of reasons. He wants to give them the, the update on his miss, missionary journeys. He wants, to, uh, you know, he wants to make sure that they receive Epaphroditus. But, but he's writing specifically to the Philippians for what reason? To encourage them to do what? You remember? Yes, to continue making progress in the faith. He, he's writing so that they will continue to, to make progress. And so we see that as Paul describes the joy that he's experiencing while he's in prison, he is supplying the Philippians and ultimately us with a paradigm for how we might live lives of radical joy even in the face of real suffering. He knows the Philippians will encounter and are encountering real suffering. And so he supplies them with a paradigm for how they might live lives of radical joy in the face of real suffering. So so what is it? How do we live lives of joy as we are experiencing real suffering? Where does that kind of unshakable, impenetrable, bulletproof joy come from? The answer Paul gives in this passage can be summarized in one word. Any guesses? I don't know if you've picked up on it. It's been the theme of pretty much every song that we've sung. sung. Hope. 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 Hope is how you have this impenetrable joy. You see, Paul is filled with joy because of what God has done through his suffering, but more than that, he's filled with an unshakable joy because of his hope in what God will do. Brothers and sisters, if, if, if you are trusting in Christ this morning, can I remind you of something? C- can you allow God's word to remind you of something this morning? That, that you have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading hope kept in heaven for you. And l- listen. We're going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about that hope. But here's what I want you to see up front. This is what I want to tell you up front. If you have this hope, if you have Paul's hope, the hope that we see here in this passage, even if every moment from now until the moment of your death were only the worst possible suffering imaginable, you're tracking with me, even if every moment from this one present presently until the day and moment you die, if all the moments in between that moment in this moment, we're only suffering of the worst possible kind. By God's grace, what that suffering would produce in your soul is unshakable joy. If you have this hope. You hear what I'm saying? Does that hope sound good? You want that hope? Let's talk about it. That's my, that's my argument this morning. Radical joy in the face of real suffering comes from a reliable hope. So two questions. So I just want to answer two questions this morning. Here they are. Very simple. What is the hope and where does it come from? What is that hope? What is Paul's hope and where does it come from? So first, what is the hope? Look, look, at, look again at the beginning. Verse 18. Let me read it again to you. It says, yes, and I will rejo- rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So there it is in a a word. Paul's hope is the hope of deliverance. Now, some people have tried to argue that the nature of this deliverance just has to do with Paul's expectation uh, that he's going to be released from prison. But the verses that follow force us to embrace a far richer meaning in Paul's words. He is he is persuaded that he will be released, but he can't be sure. And, and so uh, he's persuaded, or he's prepared to die for the sake of Christ, if that's what it comes to. And, and so what we see is that Paul's hope for deliverance is not merely a hope that his circumstances will change, but it's, it's a hope that moves beyond his circumstances. So wh- what does Paul mean precisely when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance? Well, well, there are really two ideas packed into that word deliverance, and both of those ideas are present here in our text. Uh, the first idea is this, the idea of vindication. When Paul says, uh, this will turn out for my deliverance, sort of baked into that word deliverance is this idea of vindication. Paul has a hope that he will be vindicated. He is confident that this, you see that with the little this there, this is, that is, his present sufferings will turn out for his vindication. And that phrase is, is Paul actually borrowing the exact words of Job. So if you were to go back into the Greek Old Testament and you, and you read the story of Job, if you're, you know the story of Job, I'm imagining many of you know the story of Job. Job has been, uh, God you know, has allowed Satan to afflict Job with incredible suffering and uh, when Job's friends come to him, really all they can say to Job is, um, hey, if you would just confess the sin that you've committed that's making God so angry, everything would be better. But of course, Job hasn't sinned, right? J- Job's blameless. He's, he's righteous. And this is what he says in chapter 13. And this is the phrase, the exact phrase, actually, that Paul borrows from Job. Um, chapter 13, verse 16, he says, this will be my salvation. In, in, the, in, the, in the Greek, the Septuagint, it's, it literally, and this will turn out for my, for my deliverance. It's the, same, it's the same phrase. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be, your ear, be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. That's the idea. Vindication. I know I will be in the right. You see, in other words, Paul's hope is, in the midst of his own suffering, is that in the end it will be shown that he is in the right, that he's justified in his words and actions. Now look how he describes this deliverance. But back, if you you probably didn't go to Job, but there in Philippians, look at verse twenty. He says, as a, as a way to describe the deliverance, he says, "It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed." but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he, he will stand before a Roman tribunal, but he is confident in his expectation that in the end, he will not be at all ashamed as it relates to the proclamation of the gospel. He, he will be like the psalmist from our, our call to worship this morning. Do you remember? He, he says, those who look to, or you could read there, those who hope in the Lord are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now, now, just again, I know throwing a bunch of words, throwing concepts at you. Think again about Paul's situation. He's sitting in a prison cell, he's had his dignity stripped, his freedom stripped. It would have been in a worldly sense a shameful existence. It would have been a reason for shame that he's there sitting as a prisoner. And we know that that suffering, that shameful treatment has come because of his proclamation of Christ, because of his relentless pursuit to honor Christ through the proclamation of his life death and resurrection. And so now he's a prisoner awaiting trial and possible execution. And, and the question that Paul's response sort of begs us to ask is, Paul, is all of this shameful treatment, is all this suffering worth it? Is this worth it? And Paul's answer is a thousand, time, a thousand times yes, it's worth it. A thousand times, yes, it's worth it because, listen, because he knows that in the end, everything he said and did to honor Christ will have been found to be absolutely justified and he will have no reason to be ashamed at all. He will be vindicated. You see, his hope isn't ultimately that he'll be found innocent before a puny Roman court. That's not the scope of this passage here. Paul isn't just saying, I won't be ashamed because they'll figure out that I didn't actually break the Roman law. No. His confidence and the joy he has in the hope of vindication is that God will be pleased with him and that he will have no cause to be ashamed before the Lord himself. He will stand before the Lord perfectly vindicated. In the end, whether he lives or dies, Christ will be honored as a result of Paul's life. And when that day comes, as we'll read in just a few weeks, we're going to get there. In just a few weeks, we'll read that when every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, Paul will have absolutely nothing to be ashamed of in in the final assessment every injustice every instance of maltreatment the chains and the suffering that would have been shameful that would have been in a worldly sense shameful and embarrassing all will be shown for what it truly was and he will experience the most profound listen he will experience the most profound i told you so in history Here he is sitting in prison because of his desire to honor Christ. And on that day, when every knee bows and Christ is lifted up before all men and everyone sees him for who he is, there will be no cause for shame. He will not be ashamed at all. He will be absolutely vindicated. Not before the the Roman courts, but before the, the courts of heaven. In other words... Paul's hope is the certain confidence, the certain confidence that in the end he will receive his commendation from the Lord, who will say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. That's his hope. So baked into that word, listen, I'm going to give you another part, but baked into that word deliverance is this hope that Paul will stand before the Lord completely, Approved of and commended of by God, vindicated. Though ever, the, all the all the prison guards and all the courts and all that, all those people are 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 here and throwing him in prison, and there's a potential that he's going to be found guilty and executed. All that stuff. Still, he knows he has his commendation from God. The Lord sees him. The Lord knows him. The Lord approves of him. The Lord commends him. And so, what what, what about you? Have you thought about that as your hope? That's an aspect of your hope that one day, that right now in Christ, you are perfectly commendable and approved of in God's sight, but one day you will know the fullness of that experience. One day you will stand before the Lord and experience the delight of his commendation of you. Is that a part of how you think about your hope? Do you live your life in the light of God's commendation of you in Christ? You see, it's Paul's confident expectation of God's ultimate approval and delight in him that has him bursting with joy as he sits in prison. Does he care what the Roman courts say? Does he care what the prison guards say? No, because he knows the Lord approves of him. Because the Lord commends him. Because the Lord accepts him in Christ. There are really three people in my life that if, if I have and I'm guessing you have these people too that if I have their commendation I mean we don't talk about it in those terms, but that's the idea if I have their commendation, if I have their approval, if I have their acceptance, no matter what's happening in my life, right things are falling apart, real suffering, real hardship, even something that, that is, appears really bad, even embarrassing, appears shameful. If I have the approval of these people, I have joy. I can move out into the world in confidence. These three, you know, three people are my wife and my parents. You know, my wife and my parents are like, we, we, we approve, yep, commended. Then, then I'm okay. I can move out into the world in joy. How, how much more so? How much more so when you know you have the approval and commendation of God, which is what you have in Christ? How much more so when you know that the Lord looks at you in Christ with utter delight and approval. So Paul knows the Lord will deliver him. That is, in the end, he will be vindicated so that he lives in the full courage and confidence that he will not be at all ashamed, but that Christ will be honored in and through him, that he will have the Lord's acceptance, that Christ will be praised in his life. That's the first little aspect there. Uh, remember we're asking the question, what is this deliverance? So the first thing I'm telling you is it's this, this final vindication that Paul has his sight set on, but then also his final salvation. That's, what, that's that's the rest of what's baked into that word deliverance, that it's a final vindication and a final salvation. Paul will not only be vindicated, but all his sufferings will eventually come to an end, and he will receive all the fullness of God's promises to him. That's precisely what Paul means when he says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. What will he gain? What, what is the gain of death in Paul's mind? It is Christ himself. It is Christ himself. He, he will gain the very object of his hope, the source of all goodness, kindness, grace, wisdom, blessing, and righteousness. You see, Paul, Paul may be delivered from his earthly prison cell. He may be delivered, and history suggests to us that he was, at least on this occasion, set free from prison because his ac- accusers failed to make the trek to Rome and they can't hold him forever, and so they eventually cut him loose. But that earthly deliverance, where he will be freed from his physical chains, is a dim pointer to an infinitely greater deliverance where he will be finally and forever set free of the bonds of his sinful body and this sinful world and delivered into the full and free presence of Christ himself. Do you hear what I'm saying? Are you tracking with me? Even if he is delivered physically, that physical deliverance is just a dim pointer to a heavenly deliverance where he will know freedom from the presence and the full full freedom from the power and presence of sin and deliverance into the presence of Christ himself. Now don't you see, brothers and sisters, this is the substance of of Paul's hope. This is the stuff of it. This is the core. This is the, this, this is the epicenter of Paul's hope that one day all God's promise, promises to him will be finally realized and he will possess the very thing that his soul longs for most. Unhindered, unobstructed, free and abundant fellowship with Jesus Christ face to face. That he will know and experience the fullness of Christ's love without hindrance. And you'll remember that's what Jesus Christ says eternal life is. Do you remember what Jesus says in John 17? And this is eternal life. That they may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That is is what eternal life is. It's not just the fact that you'll have a body that goes on forever. It's that in that body you you will be made perfect and set completely free to know God without hindrance, to know him perfectly, to possess the very thing your heart and soul longs for most. The promise of eternal life and final salvation is the promise that a day is coming when we will know and be known by Christ perfectly. Brothers and sisters, can you imagine what that day will be like? I, I know I know. We, we're, we're just like, we can get tunnel vision on our week. We get tunnel vision on just like what's going on in our lives. Can, can you just stop for a moment and try to imagine what it will be like on the day when you see him face to face? When all the, the weaknesses of this sinful body are stripped away? when all of the hindrances of life in this world corrupted by darkness are stripped away and you are able to see and be with him without any obstacle, what joy will fill your heart? Don't you think? Let me put it to you this way. Everyone uh, longs to gain the love of those people in their lives they find to be absolutely lovely. So maybe you're someone who's still hoping to find someone that will uh, love you that you see as lovely. I'm thinking in particular about, you know, kind of like a, a marriage relationship. Or maybe you have that love. You're, you're, maybe you're sitting next to your spouse, you're sitting next to the person. Uh, that you, you found to be so lovely, and then they, they loved you in return. And here, here's what I want to ask you. Can, can you remember that moment, or can you remember that season when you realized that the person that was so lovely in your eyes turned to you, and you realized they loved you just the same way that you love them? Do you remember that moment? Did you remember that season? H- here's what I'm telling you. I'm trying to help you imagine what that day will be like when you see Jesus face to face. That experience, which is a is a deep, thrilling experience, isn't it? Right to, to, to see the person that you're like, oh, well, that's so wonderful, and then and then they love you, and you're like me. You love you actually love me. That experience, that thrill, that excitement, is is such a dim little hint shadow echo of what it will be like when you arrive and the longing and the love of your soul is there before you, Jesus Christ. And he doesn't say to you, depart, get out of here. What are you doing here? But says, come in, you are my delight. And I've done everything so that you can be with me forever. Can you imagine that day? That's Paul's hope. That's what he has his mind fixed on as he's he's sitting there in the prison cell and he knows it's coming. And so the joy of that day bleeds back into his experience and his heart is filled with joy as he thinks about that day when he'll look into Jesus' eyes and Jesus will look into his eyes and it will say, finally, now we get to be together without hindrance forever. All blessing, all joy, all rest, all peace, all goodness forever, in increasing measure. That's why Paul says in verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. What an understatement. You see how loose Paul's grip is on the world because he knows the moment this earthly life slips through his fingers will be the very moment he is delivered into the presence of the one who is the source, substance, and fulfillment of his soul's deepest longings. Finally, he will have his reward, the fullness of Christ himself in ever-increasing measure forever. That's what Paul means when he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. This will be my deliverance. I will get everything that he has promised to me. And let me just say one more thing about this hope. Here's the hope. It's not, probably more than anything, you have to understand this. It's, it's not wishful thinking right? Paul's not talking about a pipe dream here. He's not talking about a pie-in-the-sky hope. When we talk about hope, a lot of times we talk about the hope with a measure of uncertainty, right? We talk about hope. We say things like, I hope it doesn't rain when I go to the beach, or we say, I hope grandma makes her famous key lime pie, but you don't, you can't finally know, right? But that's not the way the Bible talks about hope. The Bible talks about hope as a certain coming reality. This is how John Owen puts it. John Owen says this. He says, Hope in general is but an uncertain expectation of a future good which we desire. But as a gospel grace, all uncertainty is removed. It's a certain reality. See, the reason this is so joy-producing in Paul is because as he fixates, as he thinks about the joy of, uh, of, of being finally vindicated, of having his commendation from the Lord, and then not only that, but receiving his final salvation, that he will have Christ in the fullness of all that he is for his people, that he knows there's nothing, 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 nothing that can threaten that hope. That it is certain, as certain as God himself as certain as the the, the very character and nature of God, that hope, the fulfillment of that hope will come to him. That's Paul's hope, and that's every Christian's hope. If you are a Christian here this morning, that's not like Paul's super apostle experience. That is the hope of every Christian. That one day, this will not just be a worship service in the Pfeiffer Community Center in Williamstown, but it will be a worship service in the new heavens and the new earth before our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his presence. And where the reality of that hope has come alive in your heart, listen, where the reality of that hope comes alive in your heart, there can only be joy. No matter what is happening in you, that's the beauty of it. no matter what is happening in your life it's not that the suffering isn't real it's not that the suffering isn't painful, but no matter what is happening, where that hope has come alive in your heart, there can only be joy so that's the first question. the first question where do uh, what is the hope The second question jeez the second question is is where does it come from <clears throat> and the answer is is right there in the beginning of the passage paul tells us right in the beginning he says yes and i will rejoice for i know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of jesus christ this will turn out for my deliverance. You see, he says, how is this deliverance going to come to me? It's going to come through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, his hope, the source, the fountain of his hope is the Lord himself. That's, that's where this hope comes from. But, but, but we can be more specific though, can't we? L- look what Paul says. <clears throat> you don't have to turn there uh, when, when Paul uh, is writing, so he, he actually does get released from prison, uh, history tells us. And, and later on in his life, he's writing letters to his little, uh, this, that sounds pejorative. He's writing a letter to his pastoral protege, Timothy. And his first, his first words to Timothy are this. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus. And then he adds these two words, our hope. By the command of God, our Savior in Christ Jesus, our hope. He He says Christ Himself is our hope. Now, now listen. We, I've already said this to you uh, in in this service. How how can Paul rest assured? How can he be certain of a future deliverance? Because he he looks back and sees a past deliverance. Christ himself is the hope of every blessing and every promise fulfilled because of the already past deliverance that Christ has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Now, I'm going to move quickly through these, and I, I really don't want to, but I, we'll, we'll just go. We'll see how, how long it takes. There are so many little interesting nuggets in this passage. You see that um, phrase there, Uh, verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. As as Paul is sitting in prison, he's hard-pressed between his desire to be with Christ and his longing to serve Christ's people. Hard-pressed between two good things. Now, what's interesting is that word hard-pressed it it appears in the, it, it it's a word that has a pretty broad semantic range. It means a bunch of different things. But there's one other there's one other place where that word is used in a similar way. And it's in, in Luke 12, 50, where uh it then it, the word literally means to be distressed. So so Paul is distressed between these two options, right? He, there they're two good things. Which one am I gonna pick? He's like stressed out. There's one other place. In, uh, in the New Testament, where you see this word used in this way, and it's, and it's when Jesus uh, says this. Let me see if I can find it. Here it is. Luke, Luke 12, uh, verse 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Or you could read it this way. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how Hard-pressed I am until it is accomplished. Now look, here's the the point I'm trying to make. Do you understand why Paul can be hard-pressed in his cell? And look at the options. The options are continue on, fruitful labor for Christ, or die and get the reward. How can Paul experience that experience of being hard-pressed and distressed between these two, two, two options with such joy? Because there was another. There, w- there was another one who was distressed. There was another one who was hard-pressed. But, but listen, think about the options But that Jesus has, right? Paul's options are both good. Continue on and fruitful labor for Jesus or die and gain. But there's another one who is is distressed and hard-pressed, and it's Jesus, and consider his options. His options are he can save himself. He can, he can go on living. He can go on as the, the Son of God for all eternity, or he can rescue his people. And what that rescue will mean is not gain. What his death will require it will mean is not gain, but it will mean absolute loss. Do you see what I'm saying? Are you track with me? Paul is hard-pressed, but there's another one who is hard-pressed. And probably the place where you see it most clearly is Jesus in the garden. That's where you see Jesus hard-pressed. That's where you see him distressed. Mark even says when he comes to the garden that he was greatly distressed and very sorrowful. And there he is, distressed. He's he's pressed between allowing the cup. He says to his father, "Can can the cup pass by me? Pressed between his desire to not have to endure the cup and his desire to rescue his people. But what will the rescue of his people mean? It will mean that he has to drink the cup. It will mean that he has to take into his heart all of the hell, all of the judgment, all of the wrath of God for their sin. And do you you see that Paul can rejoice and say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain because what Jesus said was, I'm going to die and it's going to be absolute and utter loss. I'm going to go to the cross and there I'm going to be absolutely forsaken by my father. I'm going to be left. You know, one of the other things you see here in Philippians is that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus is there helping Paul. How can Paul know the, the the forever help of Jesus, the forever help of the Spirit of God? Because when Christ went to the cross for Paul's sin, and when Christ went to the cross for your sin... He was abandoned. He was left without help, without anyone. He was left alone. He was rejected on the cross. It was utter silence from the Father. He was forsaken. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was left alone. He was left without help so that you never would be. You see? How can Paul be sure of the future deliverance because he knows the great cost that Jesus paid to deliver him from sin and death and hell because he knows that while he's sitting in the, in the prison cell saying to die is gain, Jesus was in the garden writhing on the ground in great distress anticipating a death that would mean absolutely an utter loss. That he would be utterly forsaken. And Jesus, pressed between those two options, goes to the cross. Why? Because of his love for his people. Because of his love for his people. So that Paul could know, so that you could know that you are in him, despite your sin, despite your brokenness, despite your wickedness, that you are absolutely accepted and commended in the Lord through Christ by faith. By Christ's death, our sins are fully punished. God's wrath is fully satisfied and we are reconciled to him forever. Now, let me just make three brief applications. That's how Paul knows. Paul knows the surety of his future deliverance because he sees his past deliverance he sees the past deliverance that Jesus has accomplished constantly uh, Jesus is calling us to look back so that we will look forward and to look forward so that we will look back so three three applications what happens when this certainty of deliverance that that works itself out in our hope and our ultimate joy what happens when that begins to take root in a person's uh, in a person 's life uh, you see here three things. One is is somewhat repetitive, but I'm just going to say explicitly: it's a life of radical joy. It is a life of radical joy that rises even in the face of tremendous suffering. And and I've got like a whole list of examples here. I'm not going to uh, actually explain all of them to you, but they'd be worth you know looking through this afternoon. Um, think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire with another man, with a, with a, with a fourth person there, the angel of the Lord. And the the, the Greek uh, Old Testament actually tells us that while they were in the fire, they were singing songs. They were singing hymns to the Lord, filled with joy in the midst of uh, their suffering. Of course, they're being preserved in the fire. But you see, in all their suffering, because of their hope of deliverance, of final deliverance, they have joy. Think about uh, the apostles suffering, the persecution the apostles suffered, and yet they, they, they received their persecution with joy. They, they counted themselves uh, uh, honored to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, and they went away rejoicing. Think about okay, so we're reading uh, the, the through the book of Philippians. Do you remember when Paul first comes to Philippi? He's imprisoned, and he's there sitting in a prison. So he's writing from a prison to Philippi. But it, one of his first uh, encounters in Philippi is, is sitting in a prison. And you know what he's doing in the prison? Uh, Bound and chained him and Silas as he suffers? He's singing hymns, which ultimately leads to, you know, the whole thing breaks apart and the Philippian jailer and and all that. Uh, Think about the the, the Hebrews. Uh, Think about the way Paul writes about the Hebrews. He says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in pr- prison. And listen, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. That is, you joyfully embraced suffering since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and, a, and an abiding one. Th- th- it's all over the place. The scriptures are filled. When this hope becomes living in your heart, it produces a radical joy. And this, by, this, by the way, When you look at why the early church explodes in the first couple centuries, it's exactly for this reason. Because the church had resources to deal with suffering that none of the other uh, you know, sort of popular philosophies had. You had two competing ones. You had like stoicism. You ever hear of stoicism before? Stoicism was this idea that you just kind of you grit your teeth and you bear it. Right? You just accept your lot in life and you deal with it. And what that does is it creates bitter, cold people when they suffer. And then you had Epicureanism. The Epicureans, they believed that all life was about the pursuit of pleasure. And so you had to do everything at all costs to avoid uh, pain and to avoid suffering. But that's not realistic. And so you have all these people in the ancient world who are saying, like, either one, we become Stoics and get really bitter and cold and, and can't deal with suffering, or we become Epicureans and we're just absolutely overwhelmed because there's no way for us to actually run away and hide and free ourselves from the experience of suffering. And then the Christians show up and say, look, if you have a, a, this hope, if you have this certain hope of vindication and final salvation, in, in, that you will one day be with Christ, it will give you uh, such a joy that you will be able to face any suffering that the world throws at you. And so that's one of the reasons why the the, the, the church was so appealing. And it's why you see that all throughout early church you have martyrs going to their death singing. You know, Polycarp and Justin and uh, Perpetua and Felicity and countless others, You know, the apostles, the disciples, you know, Jan Hus, Tyndale, Cranmer, all of them going to their deaths joyful singing because of the hope that they had Christ. That's application one, a a radical joy. Number two, a radical commitment to Christ. That's verse 21, right? For to me, to live is Christ. Verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, right? When you have this hope that springs forth in joy, it works itself out in a radical commitment to Christ, no matter the cost. In application three, a radical service to others. You see Paul saying there in verse 23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the face of it. In me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Even in the face of this certain hope that he knows one way or another is going to come to him eventually, he has an overflowing joy, and that joy works itself out in a heart that is radically other-oriented. Self-giving, self-sacrificial service to others. Let me close with this. We're about to sing these words after we eat from the table. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, That's the whole point of this sermon. What are you holding to this morning? What is is your hope? He says, to this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips will repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Brothers and sisters, don't you see in Christ, you can have a radical joy even in the face of, of real suffering, because you have a reliable, certain, sure hope that you will receive everything that God has promised you. Final vindication, final salvation, all God's blessings to you in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I I know the hour is late. I pray that this time has been a blessing uh, to these brothers and sisters, that their souls have been nourished and, and that their, their hearts, again, have been lifted to consider the hope that you have given, the living hope that you have given to them in Christ. That we know no matter what happens between this day and either the day we die or the day Christ's return, our future is sure, our future is certain. Our eternity has been secured, and it is an eternity of unending blessing and joy in knowing you and seeing you face to face. Lord, I pray that you would help this church to live up to its name, that we would be a church that is overflowing and filled with joy because of the hope that we have in you. Lord, would you do this for the sake of your great name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.